This is Psych Bates, a show about what really matters in mental health, of all matters, mental health. We bring you the biggest experts for the most important topics. By any means necessary. Let the debates begin. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Jonathan Namayas and Monty Altohami, your favorite psychiatry residents extraordinaires. Uh, tonight, I'm very, very... Good to be back. Good to be back. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. We have a very special guest with us tonight. Uh, we'll let Monty... We do, we do. Uh, ...do some explanations. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm, I'm very excited, uh, Jonathan. I must say, as ever, uh, people might think I'm constantly manic, but I'm genuinely excited <laughs> about having Dr. Nancy McWilliams on who I, I was reading her book, um, the, the Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, and I was like, wow, this is like so well written and easy to read. And I was just thinking to myself, wouldn't it be cool to talk to her? Hmm. What, is, what does that and say about you, you Monty? I, I wonder, like, I don't know. yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, I'm, I'm using repression. I don't, I don't know. know. Sub- sublimation. <laughs> sublimation. So, <laughs> I'm using the mature defense mechanisms. Um, who, who's, uh, you know, and we're kind of giving you guys a little teaser of the episode because we're going to be talking about psychoanalytic and psychodynamic theories, um, which is like kind of really cool and interesting. I think people, when, when they ask us, uh, what, what do we do? And we say we're psychiatry residents or psychiatrists and, and so on. They think we're, we're psychoanalyzing them. They're like, Monty, you're, are you going to psychoanalyze me? Are you psychoanalyzing Or just straight like, up mind uh, reading. Is- I wish. <laughs> <laughs> if, I wish I had the capacity. If to only, it. right? If only. Yeah, yeah. It, it, if only I like done my own analysis and uh, also like did very rigorous training after residency to become an analyst. Little known fact, yes. yes. And once you graduate from psychiatry residency, you gain your badge that allows you to read minds. Not many people know this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> It's, uh, I, uh, I already got mine. I don't know why you're getting yours so late, John. Oh, you know, I was held back a few years. You know how it is. It's okay, though. Everybody should still see me as their psychiatrist. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, look, on, on a very more serious note, uh, Dr. Nancy McWilliams is a psychoanalytic uh, slash dynamic author, teacher, supervisor, therapist. Um, she teaches part-time um, as a uh, full professor at Rutgers University mm-hmm. in New Jersey, um, at the Graduate School of Applied and Professional Psychology and, and does also private practice out there. She's the former president of the Division of Psychoanalysis of the American Psychological Association. So we are talking to the person to be talking to. Major um, player. And she has, she has written so many books uh, and they're, they're pretty standard reads. Um, many, many people have read them that are doing their training, psychoanalysis, as well as, uh, I know people in our residency that have been, have been reading her work as well. Um, and so we're really excited to have her on. I think, um, psychoanalysis and psychodynamic comes with this, like, uh, uh, I don't know, aura, Mm -hmm. uh, this, this, this hue of mystery, um, it feels like you're entering the land of Narnia, <laughs> and uh, especially if you're very, uh, very logical um, and, and like just uh, the evidence-based range things, um, you might think that psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theories and therapy is not, but it is very much rooted in evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're excited to have her on. But before that, visit us at psychdebates.com, mm-hmm. the home of mental health debates. Yes. Uh, where they where can they find us, Jonathan? Um, I don't know. What was that website? 
I don't know. I, I think I just. I must have name. dissociated and not heard you the first time. <laughs> uh, defen- right, defense well, mechanism for well, the uninformed. You're gonna have to save. You're gonna have to save some. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> um, uh, guys, if you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please leave us a review. Email us. Tell us what do you guys think. Um, we're always excited to hear from you guys, and we always like it when we hear from audience members about the way they the way they like um, they, they if they have any feedback for us or if there are certain things they like about our podcast that we should keep going that are helpful for us, and maybe we can take some recommendations from y'all about who we should be talking to next. So looking forward to hearing from yes, you Yes, thank you so much for everybody that has provided input. Uh, know that we are very much looking at this. Yeah. And so without, without further delay, Jonathan, I do really want to call the psych debate house to the motion and want to discuss this topic that I'm really excited about. Um, so let's go on to the debates. See you on the other side. Dr. Nancy McWilliams, we're so excited about having you on. Me, me and Jonathan have been kind of going back and forth about this and just kind of the different uh, ideas that are in psychiatry and having you on is going to be really helpful for us, but I think particularly the audience because I'm finding that there's a lot of uh, the psychoanalytic and psychodynamic theories are permeating social culture, uh, social and popular culture these days. And so we're really excited uh, to have you on uh, for this episode. I'm glad to be here. So, I mean, so, some of the questions that we start with, usually me and Jonathan, are, are basic definition questions. And this is something that comes across, you know, people throw the words psychoanalysis, psychodynamic, you know, the first thing when I tell people I'm a psycho uh, psychiatry resident, uh, they wonder if I'm psychoanalyzing them. And (laughs) so uh, I just want to begin with those just brief definitions of what that means, psychoanalysis and psychodynamic. Uh, Well, you start with what seems like a simple question, but is really a little bit complicated because those terms have been used in different ways. And, um, Sigmund Freud, who invented the idea of psychoanalysis, although you know, plenty of people uh, preceded him in knowing a lot about unconscious stuff, but he used the term different ways. Sometimes he used it very narrowly to describe a particular type of treatment. Um, this would be for people who had problems that were construed at the time as neurotic, mean, meaning that they knew they had a problem, they had some kind of conflict that was causing the problem, they weren't psychotic. Um, they they didn't suffer from addiction. Certain things, you know, are, are not really suitable for psychoanalytic um, treatment the way Freud originally invented it. So part of the time he's talking about a type of treatment where it, where the patient comes several times a week to the therapist's office, lies on the couch free associates, in other words, says everything that comes to mind and both patient and therapist try to figure out what are the themes going on. And um, one of the things that's particularly important in that type of treatment is to pay for the therapist to pay attention to how the patient is imagining the therapist feeling. That's the transference. So uh, if I'm in traditional psychoanalysis, I lie on the couch, I free associate, I start noticing that it's hard for me to talk about certain things, even though I'm trying to free associate. And I realize that it's because I have an idea about how the therapist is probably thinking about me. 
given what I'm talking about. And when I get into that, that seems to be the richest part of the work. Like, you know, you can, you can say something like, um, I think I'm afraid of being criticized, but when you're lying on the couch trying to bear your soul and you're suddenly in terror that the person behind you is um, going to attack you um, critically um, and destroy your self-esteem, it, it's emotionally very powerful. So Freud kind of discovered with the help of some talented patients of his, uh, that method of treatment. That method is very valuable for people who are very curious about themselves, who have the means to afford frequent psychotherapy um, with a highly trained person and whose problems are not psychotic or severely personality disordered. Um, so that's using the term psychoanalysis as a type of treatment. But it's also been used to describe um, a, um, a general body of knowledge. Uh, and, and Freud sometimes used the term loosely too. He, he sometimes said psychoanalysis is any form of interaction um, that is intended to be therapeutic in which people are looking at transference, that is, you know, the, the, feeling, the feelings get, get transferred onto the therapist. Like if you had a critical parent, you're worrying that your therapist is critical of you. And resistance, which is, I, I know I want to talk about this, but it's hard to talk about this. Um, I feel conflicted about talking about this. That's resistance. Um, so some people throw that word around to apply to all psychoanalytically oriented treatment. Some people prefer the word psychodynamic to refer to anything other than traditional so-called classical three or more times a week on the couch analysis. But people also use the term to talk about a body of knowledge that assumes unconscious processes um, that's very uh, important from my perspective, at least, in understanding personality differences, unconscious um, difficulties, uh, moving forward with some direction you want to go in, defenses, you know, differences among people in, in how they defend themselves against pain and anxiety. Uh, so so the, it's, it's complicated. Some people would say that there's even a psychoanalytic ethos, which involves a therapist taking a position of being curious, uh, not knowing, um, wanting to understand, um, not being the expert. You know? uh, when people say to you, are you going to analyze me? They have an image that you're some kind of mind reader who just by listening to them can figure out something shameful about them. If they only knew how hard it was to figure out people and, and how you needed to have a certain you know, framework of an office and instructions about what the patient shares with you, they wouldn't worry that you're doing it in social events. Anybody who would do that socially has, uh, you know, rather than because it's their, their living is, is misusing it anyway. Uh, they usually mean diagnosing me rather than analyzing me. You know, are you seeing that I'm paranoid or something like that? Yeah, I feel like it's very, it's commonly, at least the way I perceive it when people think about it is, is people feel like they're, go they're being judged in some way. 
like if you're if you're analyzing me then you're thinking that I am I am this way and so I have to be very careful and maybe step on my toes and be careful what I say so that I won't be judged and and it sounds like you were, you were maybe alluding to some of that happening like some of the patients in the room they they could be terrified of of what the the therapist is thinking about them um, yeah, but that's not because the therapist approaches it with the point of view of, aha, what am I going to get on this patient? It's because we all are judged to a certain extent growing up. And um, unless you're a psychopath, you worry about what other people think of you and you transfer what previous authorities have thought to the clinical situation, which is in traditional psychoanalysis rather unspecified. I mean, I. I went into analysis not knowing whether my therapist was a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, I knew he was male. I didn't know how old he was. I didn't know if he had kids. So I, you project a lot in situations that are ambiguous like that. And one of the things that you typically project is um, your, uh, your self-criticism that is based on the internalization of critical things people have said to you growing up. So that's what we would call transference. The person coming in is afraid that the therapist is taking a know-it-all attitude toward them, feeling superior and looking for how they're crazy. But in fact, in psychoanalysis, because we require that everybody who um, becomes an analyst go through psychoanalysis, you can be confident that if you're an analysis, your analyst has gone to the darkest places in their personality and therefore has a lot more compassion than your friends or your family tend to have toward anything that you're afraid is gonna be judged. But people have no way to know that going in. We all generalize. I mean, what we call transference in psychoanalysis is pretty much what the behaviors call stimulus generalization. You generalize from what's happened to you before. Hmm. And that's, that's so interesting that there are these parallels between um, different schools of thought. Um, I, I like that. I, I liked your approach in the definition, and I think it's really helpful for people to think about in that uh, when we're talking about psychoanalysis and um, psychodynamic theory, we're talking about not only a body of work um, that's related to what we think of the mind, but also the framework of doing therapy. Uh, but that 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 is superseded by theory, and then the theory is that um, there is an unconscious, and that's that's where we begin um, with the idea mm-hmm. of unconscious. I've always I've always had the most questions from people when they talk about psychoanalysis and psychodynamics. How do we know that there is an unconscious? Um, and how how would you how would you kind of uh, uh, remediate that in your mind when you're trying to be very practical, and especially in the medical field for us, um, when it's very much seen as believing evidence-based medicine? Well, first of all, I don't think many analysts talk about an unconscious. Um, We talk about unconscious processes. And so do CBT therapists. They call them implicit processes. And so do neuroscientists. And everybody's agreed at this point that a, a great deal of behavior, affect, cognition even, is not in conscious awareness. Now, where analysts are probably different from many other people is that they talk about dynamic unconscious processes. So you could have an unconscious 
wish and fear of the same thing. Or you could have a, you could think that you want to do something and then discover that there's a part of you that's been fighting that all this time. You think you want to get your paper in, you find yourself procrastinating. You got to kind of find the part of you and make it conscious that really does not want to do that. Or that feels like it's some kind of submission or that feels that it's going to be a success that's going to be dangerous, you know, based on whatever your history is. Um, but I don't know of anybody anymore that would say that all behavior is based on consciousness. I'm not sure anybody ever really did say that. Um, but the I mean, Freud was very vivid in the way he talked about things. And he did talk about the unconscious as if he had discovered it which he, he didn't really. There were many, many people um, who talked about unconscious processes before Freud did. He was a really good propagandist for his way of thinking about what was unconscious and, and what was, the, uh, and he was wrong about a lot of stuff, but he was brilliant about a lot of stuff too. And I know um, in contemporary neuroscience, a lot of what Freud speculated about has held up pretty well. I appreciate you bringing up the the I, I suppose the the recognizing that Freud is neither all good or all bad, right? Like he's not this this evil or good persona. And I feel like um, out of out of uh, people and and just just lay people in the world generally, Sigmund Freud might be one of the most well known people. And and people people bring him up. Uh, and these days I, I hear about a lot of criticism actually about him, such as like how he was misogynistic or about how he, he had all these thoughts. Um, but, but like you mentioned, they don't hold up. Um, do you feel like that impacts your work as like a psychoanalyst or psychodynamic, uh, therapist today? Well, not really. Not once people get to know me and realize that I'm, <laughs> I'm not in the religion of psychoanalysis with Sigmund Freud as the main saint. You know, fortunately, enough decades have gone by that we're, we're no longer in contemporary psychoanalysis in a situation where you're, you're either worshiping Freud or exposing Freud's you know, limitations. Um, uh, and, and there's a lot of misunderstanding of, of Freud. Um, he, he was just a guy who was very smart and was trying to help people, you know, he, <laughs> and he had some brilliant ideas. Um, I don't, I've never read him as misogynistic and I'm a feminist from way back. I think he got some things really wrong about women. And I think he was in a patriarchal culture, but he also took women seriously at the time that he started to see women who were diagnosed at that point with hysteria. They'd now be diagnosed probably with um, somatoform disorders or post-traumatic disorders. When he was seeing them, they were treated with great contempt because they were seen as you know, making it up um, and, and, and having these weak feminine problems. In fact, Soldiers who came back from World War I who had symptoms like the so-called hysterical women of Freud's day um, were devalued for being, you know, having feminine weaknesses. But Freud took, took those women seriously, decided that their symptoms must have some kind of meaning um, and let them teach him. I mean, free association was the invention of one of his patients. So that feels very respectful to me. Um, he was the psychoanalysis was the first 
profession I know of that invited women in on an equal basis with men as theorists, not just as practitioners. But Freud you know, got his daughter interested um, and supported many of the contemporary female psychoanalysts of the time. So it is true that some of his theories, like his idea that penis envy is you know, uh, universal in women, uh, is first of all wrong <laughs> because you know, it's not that you don't occasionally find that, but it, it's, um, it doesn't define the female experience. But that they were put into practice in ways that Freud would have been horrified by. For example, there were analysts in the 50s that would tell women, you know, uh, you should be perfectly happy being a housewife and mother. And if you're not, it's because you have unresolved penis. And uh, this is not something he would have ever said. But if you've been treated that way, you're not going to feel very positive about psychoanalysis if that was done in the name of psychoanalysis. And there were a lot of exposés about how women were treated in psychotherapy around the 70s, starting with Kate Millett, I would say. But contemporary psychoanalysis is very, um, it, it, it's, it's very fused with contemporary feminism, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very fascinating. Um... And uh, uh, I think one of the things that really struck me as I, I was reading your um, psychoanalytic diagnosis book um, was your mention in the beginning of the book that um, a lot of the writers um, in psychoanalysis um, and psychodynamic writers use very difficult language. Um, yeah, and I think, it's a curse. I think, <laughs> I wondered why that is. I've all because I I try to do my own reading when I get the time in residency, um, and I'm finding <laughs> that maybe I I haven't learned the English language yet. <laughs> um, and there are many, the many only words, <laughs> many words for me to catch up on. Um, and I wonder if it's just uh, kind of an exclusionary culture, or if it's uh, we, we need to use a higher level of language to describe these processes that are not that easy to describe. Uh, I just thought what your opinion is on that. Oh, I think it's a little bit of both um, exclusionary. Like, you know, most professions have, you know, highfalutin kinds of language just so that they reassure themselves that they're not as stupid as everybody else. Same with psychiatry in general. (laughs) Um, There's certainly that in it. It didn't come from Freud because one of the reasons Freud had such an impact on popular culture was that he wrote really clearly. Um, uh, and and some of the early psychoanalysts did too, but but uh, later ones, God, it's like wading through you know mud to try to figure out what they mean. And some of that's accidental. Um, many of them were many of the um, very influential psychoanalysts in the middle of the last century were um, refugees from the Holocaust, and English was not their primary language. So there's a Germanic tone, you know overtone to some of the ways they use words. Or somebody like Otto Kernberg, whose writing has gotten better over time, but um, he fled Germany when he was 11. He's a major psychoanalytic theorist. Um, He lived in Chile all of his uh, young life after 11, and then he came to the Menninger Clinic in the United States. So he's when he writes something, he's translating at some part of his mind from his native German to his you know, childhood Spanish to English. So English is his third language. And so he uses even simple words like D 
devaluating instead of devaluing. So some of the accidents of history are part of why we use jargon. Um, There's another thing too, and that is that people, like in any profession, compete to have new ideas. And there aren't that many new ideas um, in trying to understand human nature. People have been trying to do this for millennia. And you know, when when you when you invent a new term, you can feel like you know you're a big shot now because you've, you've got this new language. And to some extent, therapists appreciate that. Every once in a while, somebody comes up with a a phrase that illuminates a patient. Like Christopher Bowles talked about the unthought known to describe stuff that's both unconscious, but at the same time, kind of known that it's, it's just a beautiful phrase. Um, that's a little easier to, to perceive than like Melanie Klein's writing about object relations, where object usually means person. That's really hard to, to get your head around. And You're it's telling me. <laughs> it's really a shame. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting, actually, I, when I think about that as there's all these different verbiages within psychodynamics, psychoanalysis, and at the same time within the other schools of psychotherapy, too. And it, and it makes me think that there's a lot of differences, but there's also a lot of similarities, like you were saying. And in some ways, they're really describing the same thing. And yeah, I'm, well, I'm curious. <laughs> you're all looking at the same suffering animal and trying to find a language to describe that and how to help the person. So Mm -hmm. that CBT started out very much defining itself as against psychoanalysis, but many of the concepts that it has engendered as it has elaborated as a discipline are very similar. The concept of schema, for example, is very similar to inner working models or internal object relations or some of the ways that analysts have talked about these patterns that, that we develop. And it makes me wonder as well if there is a if there's a certain reason. And I know earlier you mentioned that if somebody has severe psychosis or personality disorder, like severe personality disorder, maybe they're not a good fit for psychoanalysis. But I'm curious if there's anything else that you would gleam as a a good reason for somebody to see a psychoanalyst or psychodynamic therapist rather than a like another kind of therapist. Well, let me clarify what I said. There are psychodynamic therapies for severe personality disorders, and for psychosis. Um, Michael Garrett's book on uh, integrating CBT with psychoanalysis for the psychotherapy of psychosis is a good recent example. Otto Kernberg's work, which is evidence-based, there's a great deal of research on transference-focused therapy for severe personality disorders. Peter Fonagy's work is evidence-based. Um, Russell Mears's work is evidence-based, so I don't want to give the impression that psychodynamic therapists have nothing to say about severe mental problems. Um, it's just that traditional, on-the-couch, free associative, um, classical psychoanalytic technique is not helpful for people in those categories. So it's not necessarily that somebody is is never going to be a good fit for these. It's more of just traditionally, these are the people that saw psychodynamic uh, therapists um, in that case, is it, what would you say to somebody who's suffering for whatever reason and they're, they're interested in, there's all these different therapies and they don't know which one to choose. So how would you describe what would be one that they should choose? I wouldn't claim to um, 
to know what they should choose unless they had some kind of condition that was very clear. If they were bipolar, I would tell them that they really needed to see a psychiatrist, get well-diagnosed, get, get medication, that probably, um, it's my experience that in general, if they can find a psychiatrist who both medicates and does psychotherapy, um, that would be what I would recommend to somebody with bipolar illness. But very often it's not that clear. I mean, somebody with a substance use disorder, I would send them to somebody with expertise in that. And I would tell them that I thought they needed probably to go through detox and rehab and then do a very specific um, program for their addiction. That Sometimes they also want to work psychodynamically, but I would make their agreement to do that um, part of the, the process. But in general, all the research shows that what really matters, what's really helpful to people is the relationship. Um, I was just reading Robert Miller's new book, Effective Psychotherapy, uh, Psychotherapists, Clinical Skills That Improve Client Outcomes. And that's over all kinds of differences of orientation. So what I tell people when they're looking for a therapist is, um, go to somebody who comes out of a reputable program. It doesn't matter unless you need medication. Um, and even that you can get adjunctively. Um, whether you go to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker, a pastoral counselor, a counselor, um, uh, sometimes a marriage and family therapist, sometimes an addiction specialist, uh, that's not nearly as important as um, how you feel about the person. Do you feel they're interested in you? Do you feel that they're compassionate? Do you feel that they're genuinely curious and trying to understand you? Um, can they explain how they work to you? Um, so since my own uh, network of colleagues is uh, psychodynamic, I tend to send people to psychodynamic therapists. But sometimes people will say to me, I really don't want to try to figure myself out. I just need strategies and skills to handle a particular problem. I might send them to try a DBT group. I might send them to a CBT colleague who um, knows more than I do about how you do exposure therapy, for example, if they have a phobia they're trying to get rid of. So partly it would depend on what I know about what they need. Um, but I would always emphasize, don't stay with somebody you don't feel safe and comfortable with, somebody you could tell everything to. Um, that applies across theoretical orientation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and along the lines, I think, of, of what Jonathan was saying in, in regards to the, the psychodynamic therapies and psycho, psychoanalysis, uh, but more, more the psychodynamic therapy, um, when, when a lot of times patients or people tell me their therapist really says nothing to them, just ask some questions. Um, and I feel, I feel like sometimes, um, I get that sense, um, about certain types of therapies that might be more insight oriented, uh, that, you know, you're taking patients down this road and just kind of giving them a mirror of themselves to get to know themselves better. Uh, is there any, at any point, a type of, um, intervention that I mean, might be more action-based or more um, in that range in terms of uh, the psycho, psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapies, or is it all insight-oriented and more expressive uh, in their range? 
Well, it's certainly insight-oriented and expressive, but um, I think most actual practicing therapists of whatever theoretical orientation integrate some other things. For example, I, I have colleagues who integrate neurofeedback. I have colleagues who integrate some of the um, trauma therapies that involve attention to the body. But the psychodynamic part of the therapy, uh, it would be about trying to find insight, but it wouldn't necessarily mean that, you, that the therapist is very, very quiet. Um, if the patient wants to keep talking and, 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 and have a, an arrangement where you just listen until you really feel like you have something you can add or some resistance you can help the person clear away, um, that's fine. If they, if they come to you feeling like that's not enough activity from you, um, I, I'd be much more conversational with them. I'd still be looking for trying to understand them. But if, if I started noticing, if I were, was quiet, that they were looking uncomfortable, I'd say, it, it feels like you're not comfortable with my silence. Tell me what's going on with you as I sit here and try to listen. And, you know, they may, they may tell me, I, I'm feeling like you don't care or you're bored or you're abandoning me or you're not there. And then we talk about that. Well, tell me more about that feeling. Where, where have you felt that before? And it usually leads back to stuff that increases their insight and their capacity to differentiate between the present and the past and so forth. Mm. And then one thing uh, that you mentioned there was trauma. And I think me and Jonathan were speaking about this earlier. The trauma is it's kind of a, uh, is a hot topic right now that permeated into popular culture that people talk about trauma in social media, that they may have this type of trauma that led to this event. Yeah. Uh, and it's essentially uh, kind of thinking in a very... Um, psychological way about their behaviors and how those behaviors are repeating themselves and i thought well that's very interesting uh, and one of one of the one of the people that tunes into this podcast asked me well what do you what do you think is a difference uh between somebody who has a trauma um and is able to kind of overcome that trauma or use that as a kind of an edge and somebody who kind of just crumbles under the pressure of that and repeats that uh, in multiple mm -hmm. facets in their life. What, what has been your kind of experience? Obviously, there's a number of factors involved here, but just curious yeah. to hear about your Well, the question that. that you're raising has been researched in many different ways, and nobody has an answer yet, especially it's been researched in children. Why does um, one child... Uh, lose her father at age five and fall completely apart and never, you know, live uh, a really competent, um, joyful life. And another kid, it seems to make stronger and they find substitute father figures. I mean, it's one problem is that you can't define trauma based on what the event was because uh, by definition, trauma is something that totally overwhelms you. Uh, some kids can go through horrific stuff, but if they feel they're um, in a community that kind of holds them, cares about them, where they can talk about what they're feeling, they have a whole different reaction to a disaster than somebody else. So to, for something to be a trauma, you have to have an overwhelming experience. You have to have nobody who talks to you about the feelings you have about it. 
And often you have to find that um, it's adaptive to you not to deal with it, not to mention it, just to go on. If you have all those three things, then you do tend to have a, a, you know, an undigested traumatic experience. Um, but people also have tremendous individual differences. Temperament plays a role in this. Uh, you know, how sensitive are you? You know, some children um, are, are devastated if you tell them they have a hair out of place. And some children you have to whack over the head practically with a board to get their attention before they notice that, you know, maybe there's something they should pay attention to. So a temperament pay, plays a big part. Um, certain very subtle aspects of the caregivers play a big part. Issues like whether you're um, in a minority community and you run into um, all kinds of uh, prejudice against minorities, whether you're an immigrant, uh, whether you feel at, at sea and not at home, uh, whether you're poor, all of those things will increase your um, the, the tendency of stressful events to rise to the level of trauma. Uh, so we still have to do a lot more research to, we, we understand a lot about psychopathology. We understand a lot less about health, about resilience. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's very interesting. And I mean, uh, me and Jonathan had had the pleasure um, of of discussing a topic of positive psychotherapy, another episode, and talking about human flourishing, and that was a really kind of an ultimate question. And I think for us in the medical field as well, what we look at is if the zero is the baseline of what is average, what is normal, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Most of the people that we're looking at are at the negative range and we're trying to get them back to their, you know, neutral state, but never really yeah. examining what it means to flourish. And exactly. Although I think most psychotherapists have a kind of internal sense of what they're working toward. And it's not just symptom relief and it's not just um, stuff that you could check off from the DSM. Uh, it, it has to do with, have you, have you improved the person's capacity to feel trust or safety, their attachment security? Do they feel a sense of continuity of self, of going on being? Do they have a sense of agency? Do they feel like they can make a difference in their, in their life? Do they have realistic and reliable self-esteem? Can they tolerate the whole range of human affects, positive and negative, and, and regulate them reasonably well? Can they um, imagine up other people's motives might be different from theirs? Can they understand other people's subjectivities? Can they accept what can't be changed and grieve and move on anyway? Can they forgive? Can they experience gratitude for what is? Those are sort of overall elements of mental health that, um, you know, it's interesting, uh, in the DSM, there's descriptions of disorders, but there's not really ever an elaboration of what mental health looks like. There's not a concept of mental health and a classification of disorders. Um, but I think therapists keep in mind their image, and, and so do patients. They come in, they don't just, they just, they don't want to score better on the Beck depression inventory <laughs> at the end. <laughs> they, want to, um, they want to make a life. They want to make a life with meaning. They have complex problems like how do I come out to my evangelical 
parents with the news that their son is gay and um, how, where am I going in my life? Why do I have these recurrent problems with the people I try to make love relationships with? Those go way beyond um, symptomatic kinds of problems. And those are the most common problems that people come to therapists for. You know, the, my, my, my life is out of balance or, you know. It's it's so in fascin it's fascinating and and honestly it just it brings a smile to my face thinking about this because on one hand you're you're absolutely right there's there's so much more to life than the the symptoms of depression that one might have you know the sleepiness the you know not eating or whatever it has you know when people have depression and and yet in psychiatry and in medical school that's that's what we learn is we learn the disorders and and you really have to have a special interest in psychotherapy and and not even just psychotherapy but a lot of things you're you're talking about are are like fundamental concepts to where if you just memorize you know how to do the curriculum and and CBT or DBT you could be missing you know and uh so so it just it makes me happy to hear about that and, and also it it makes me wonder too is this something that we're missing in psychiatry like should psychiatrists be required to learn more about these what, these positive topics you're describing and, and psychoanalysis in general? Well, I, I wouldn't know how to advise you on that because I think psychiatrists are so overwhelmed with so many things they have to learn. Uh, but one of the things I think they have to learn is a little bit about what psychotherapy is like, even if they intend to be only doing medication consults, because they'll be doing medication consults sometimes um, in, in collaboration with therapists who are treating the patients with psychotherapy and they should know a bit about it. They also should know something about um, the kinds of psychology that get in the way of, of taking medication. I imagine both of you have had the experience of having a really good treatment plan and then having a patient that just doesn't wanna cooperate with the treatment plan. And then what do you do? You know, you can't just repeat the treatment plan. It, you have to know something about what they're afraid of, what they're defending against, how to ally with them, how to make an alliance with them so that they find a way to want what is good for them. And that's what psychotherapy can help. Yeah, um, and that, I think that brings me to the, the point of like what, well, it's a two-part question, which is one for more targeted towards our audience, which is, what are some things that people can start reading or looking into um, just from people who are interested in mental health um, that might be curious about these topics uh, so they can learn more um, about psycho psychoanalysis, psychodynamic theory, or just human human psychology that you think might be beneficial um, in helping them understand their life a little bit more? Well, for people who want to understand more about how psychoanalytic therapists really think and work. My favorite book to recommend is by Deborah Lupnitz, L-U-E-P-N-I-T-Z. It's called Schopenhauer's Porcupines. And it's five very different cases um, that she worked with. Um, kids, adults, uh, an impoverished street kid, a couple. Um, and how she thought about them, how she called on various psychoanalytic ideas to help her understand and help people. So I would certainly recommend that book. Laurie Gottlieb a few years ago um, published a popular book. Uh, what is it? Some, 
it's on my shelf here somewhere. Uh, I think it's called something like, maybe you should talk to someone about that. <laughs> but it's not Weave, it's her last name. And it's very simply written. Um, if you want to know about uh, psychotherapy itself in general, um, the book I mentioned before, Effective Psychotherapist, is probably mm -hmm. helpful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There, I can, you know, there are other decent textbooks. And we'll, we'll make stuff. sure, we'll, we'll, and we'll also make sure to kind of put those in the link uh, for our audience members uh, with the link to those books. Uh, obviously, we have no royalties, so uh, yeah. feel free to read those books if you wish. Feel uh, free to give us royalties if there's any sponsors <laughs> listening. <laughs> um, you I guys mean, are and, doing this entirely out of love, right? You, yeah, absolutely. Really absolutely. Nice absolutely. Wink, wink. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <We're trying. laughs> um, and I, I guess my wonder is that another question that people ask me is like, can you self-psychoanalyze yourself? Um, or can you do... <laughs> There's an old joke you, about that. Yeah, well, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> you know, the term counter-transference is, you know, when your patient has a transference, like for when they think you're going right. to be a critical parent and they're angry at you um, or suspicious of you, you tend to start not liking them very much in your own feelings. And then you have to be honest about that with yourself and figure out what it's telling you and so forth. So that's your counter-transference. Um, so the old joke is the only problem with self-analysis is the counter-transference. <laughs> you know? you, you can't see your own blind spots very well. I think you can. I, I think there are um, are ways of increasing your self knowledge, and people have done that from time immemorial. But in general, I'd say if you want a deep understanding of yourself, you have to bounce who you are off another human being, and and have them ob observe you. Um, it, it doesn't have to be a psychoanalytic process. You know, sometimes a really good friend can call your attention to stuff. But if good friends aren't doing the job, um, people like me are, are trained to tactfully find ways of helping you see some of the blind spots that you might have uh, toward yourself for whatever reason, fear of what you'll find, shame. Uh, whatever. And Dr. McWilliams, th there was one question that I wanted to make sure I asked, and I, I couldn't figure out uh, the best time to ask it. So I'll just ask it now. What is dream analysis? I, I hear about this, but I, I don't have any idea other than just guessing of what it is. So I'm curious if you could explain what it is. I can explain how I would um, do it with a patient. And that's pretty similar to the way Freud uh, did it. Um, if a patient comes in with a dream, you ask them to tell you the dream. Um, you listen uh, to, to kind of hear what the theme might be, but you ask them to take every image in the dream and reassociate to it. Like, what comes to mind about the tree? What comes to mind about that woman? Um, what was the feeling in the dream? And if you follow out enough of those the person generally has a kind of aha experience of, oh, I keep associating to issues where, uh, let's say, um, I'm feeling out of my depth. I can, I can use a, 
a personal example of a recurrent dream that I have that's not too difficult to fear. Back in my youth, when I was 22 years old, I directed a Girl Scout camp. I was too young to do it, but you know, I had some mentors that thought I was up to it. And for two years, I was the director of a summer camp. And every time now, I'm in a situation where I feel um, a little not up to the task. Maybe I'm giving a talk to a group of scholars that I think of as particularly impressive. And who am I to know something that they don't? Um, I will have uh, my camp director dream. And my, my dream is that um, I'm a camp director. I'm too young to be a camp director. The campers, somebody's lost. Some parent is angry. Uh, there's a storm coming. And I'm just a 22-year-old, you know, person. That that's a that's a type of dream, an anxiety dream. That it's not the kind of dream that um, Freud thought all dreams were. He thought all dreams were based on an unconscious wish. Um, and he he sometimes had to really turn himself into a pretzel to um, to <laughs> to find a wish. I mean, he'd probably say, you know. The wish is to wake up and realize that you're not 22 years old and you and the campers aren't rebelling and the parents aren't angry and so on. But um, often there is some wish under a dream. And if when people check out all, all of those um, little paths, the associative networks of their brain, a theme comes in. Um, so it's not so much that every dream means definitely means something. Um, but rather it could could mean something and and if even if not it sounds like you're saying it can prompt some insightful discussion where you can talk about these associations that that may be there yeah I mean I, I would go so far as to say that all dreams have meaning because I don't think there's anything in brain activity that's totally meaningless and accidental I think there are the contemporary research is showing there are somewhat different kinds of dreams. There are post-traumatic dreams, there are REM sleep dreams and non-REM sleep dreams. And, and I don't know that literature really well, but I do know that when patients have a dream that they want to talk about, um, it usually leads to something really valuable. They may remember something that they've forgotten. They may, um, and, and sometimes really strange things happen I had one patient, for example, whose family um, you know, had a, a, a fair amount of poverty. And so she was always worried about running out of resources, whatever it was. And she would have four or five uh, guys that she had as backups to whatever guy she was dating, because you never know. Um, and she, um, she had a dream where the word Malthus appeared. Now, I happen to know because of having uh, studied in college his economic theory that Malthus uh, believed that there was um, a, a limit to what you could have, that you would run out of resources. And that it was a very, he was a very sort of um, gloomy economic theorist. And I said that to her and she was amazed that she had had that name in her dream. She didn't know what it meant, but somewhere she must have studied that and it, or, or somebody mentioned it and it um, summarized the theme that was very central in her own psychology to such an extent that it came into the dream. What you can't do with dreams is say, this always means this, this always means that, and so forth. Some things 
um, frequently mean something. Bridges often frequently mean a life transition, for example. Um, but maybe it means something completely different to this patient, given what their associations are to a bridge. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And, and kind of along the lines of things that um, I do want to ask is uh, there was a lot of mention of defenses. Um, and, you know, in popular culture, people talk about this person's projecting, this person's displacing, yeah. uh, this person's avoiding. And it comes up quite often. And I wonder what... What is a what is a defense? What is it defending against? Well, the original concept of defense comes from Freud, and Freud loves military metaphors, so okay. it's probably not the best word. Um, but in a way, he te- he was looking at these prophecies that he later called defenses when they were operating in a defensive way. Um, you mentioned projection. We all project all the time. Usually it's pretty benign. I mean, when, when, when I assume that you might be interested in what I say, it's because I'm interested in what I say and you seem to be similar. I'm projecting onto you my own enthusiasm. Um, that's a benign form of projection. And that's how we understand other people, really. Um, it's, the, it's the problematic versions of projection when, uh, let's say, I have, I have to believe that you're being hostile to me be, to understand my own sense of, of um, vulnerability um, because I, I can't bear the fact that I'm hostile to you for some reason because that would mean I'm a bad person. So I disown that. I project it onto you and then I'm trying to protect myself against you. That's where you're using it to defend against, in this case, a lot of anxiety about attack or shame about um, you know, what kind of person am I that I'm feeling hostile toward you? Um, so he, he, he saw these processes, which are normal human developmental processes. He saw them in their defensive function. Um, dissociation is a, is, a, is a wonderful process. You know, the, the fact that we can d- not think about something and cope anyway, that, you know, people who are in Horrible accidents can somehow uh, dissociate what's hap- from what's happening and cope. That, that's a, a, a very fine possibility that our minds have. But when we work with a patient who dissociates in ways that are very maladaptive, then we're looking at the defensive function of it. And that's true for all the defenses. Um, but they're defending against intolerable affect. Freud put the emphasis on anxiety and he, he started naming some of the defenses against anxiety. But people also defend against horrible grief, against shame, against envy, uh, against um, feelings of self-criticism. You know, they, they, it, it can be very defensive to brag about yourself, to deflect yourself from noticing that you have an area of flaw. Uh, so it, it's the stuff that you can't bear um, inside that you tend to defend against. There, there are also, you know, there are, speaking of positive psychology, there are some positive defenses. One of the ways we handle pain is through humor um, or through, I mean, this for physicians, um, Freud would have said uh, they're using the defense of sublimation. Um, 
when they are, for example, operating on a person, they're, they're turning the part of them that's curious about blood and gore into a socially useful uh, activity rather than a kind of shameful curiosity or even sadism. Uh, so they're taking something that's ugly and they're making it into something socially valuable. That's, that's what we all try to do. We, we try to use our envy to, um, to admi admire people and, and learn how to get some of the things we envy or we use our disappointment to try to propel ourselves forward. Um, it's it's really fascinating to to even think about these things, yeah. and I find myself like just uh, touching the tip of the iceberg here. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I, you know, and Monty and I could talk to you probably for hours and just be fascinated. I, I also want to be mindful of of your time and and I'm just ask for you one quick. You on. No, definitely. And I just wanted to. Is there any last minute things you'd want to make sure that we or the audience here um, may want to know regarding you or psychodynamics or psychoanalysis? Um, just don't believe everything that you hear from people who may not have ever read a word that any psychoanalyst wrote or that stopped reading psychoanalytic ideas around 1923. <laughs> you know, Freud doesn't define contemporary psychoanalysis, even though he started the process any more than Darwin uh, defines contemporary um, evolutionarily oriented biology. Uh, so just uh, approach any kind of understanding of um, people with an effort to understand what the theorist was, what problem they were trying to solve. And uh, if, you, if you take a sympathetic perspective on what problems were, were these people trying to solve and, and how did they pursue it? Why did these concepts make sense to them? You're going to learn a lot more than learning what you know, your own particular prejudice uh, that comes from some professor who had never read the primary source might have given you. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so, so much for your time. It's just been such a treat getting to chat with you. Yeah, this was yes. fun for me too. <laughs> yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You take My care. pleasure. All right, take care.